Welcome to Truth Transistor Radio. This is the most awesomest podcast of all time. I'm your host, Rob Hedrick. This podcast is brought to you by Proverbs 1618. Pride going before destruction. Hello, Truth Transistors. Welcome to episode 18 of my podcast. And this episode is called Apostasy Part 6, Eastern Orthodoxy. And I want to make this very clear. I'm not attacking all people within Eastern Orthodoxy. I'm attacking uh, perhaps the doctrines of it and the movement within it. Uh, I believe that there are true believers in it. So just like I said with Roman Catholicism and maybe some of the other uh, things in here, I'm not attacking the people, just the doctrines and the movement and where it came from. Now, uh, last night I watched a documentary on Netflix called The Great Hack. If you haven't seen it, um, it's it's about the uh, Cambridge Analytica that they claim um, Trump used to help him win. Uh, The idea is that Cambridge Analytica would use information on people's social media and Google searches to manipulate people through what Trump would, so they would give Trump key phrases to say and things. Um, And their focus was on two things. Number one, that that's cheating, that somehow that's criminal for a politician to use. Uh, I have a different perspective on that, you know, because I think, number one, I do think it's kind of, it's deceptive, and I think uh, it's wrong in, in a sense, but I don't think it's something new. I don't think it's something uh, unique to Donald Trump and to uh, Cambridge Analytica. I think that uh, it's been used by politicians in America for many years uh, by the media uh, and, you know, saying things um, for both parties, really. And uh, I, I think that in a sense, it's, it's, it's hard for me to blame them. I think we need to look in the mirror and look and re- learn how to think and research ourselves, which is something I've been saying all along. So if you're being manipulated, if you're being deceived, Part of that has to come back to you. If you, like, if you end up in a cult, and you're being deceived by a cult leader, that is partly your responsibility. Now, obviously, I say the cult leader is evil for deceiving his people, but I, I think that if you aren't thinking for yourself and researching yourself, then you have to take your own responsibilities for that. Um, I think that the media manipulation and things obviously is evil but I've tried to to uh, tell you all not to listen to me not to listen to anybody else but try to do as much research as you can find real documentations you know read laws uh, you know read uh, listen to their own words you know things like that that politicians say or that um, you know what bills are saying and 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 all of that stuff you know when it comes to the pandemic look at everything that the who and uh whether i can't think of the other health organizations uh are saying in their own words and oftentimes they will uh contradict themselves you know so it's important for us to pay attention and to read and to understand and to think to use our own brains (laughs) and not just take what the media is saying or or what the headlines are saying or or whatever whichever side you're on that that goes for conservative media liberal media uh theologians etc anything anything i say (laughs) uh think for yourself and stop letting other people think for you because they proclaim that they are the uh you know the authority or the experts on this subject because they have you know credentials (laughs) 
they might be experts, they might have credentials, but they also might be corrupt. And there are oftentimes experts that disagree with them as well, but they're the ones kind of being censored in a lot of these things. But the other point that they made is one that I do agree with, and I think it is a good uh, thing to push for, is the uh, protecting the private property of people's information. In other words, just like your own house, you know, you have your private property and people aren't just allowed to come in and steal it unless you're the IRS or the federal government. <laughs> but generally speaking, we have our private property and, and we have that protected under law and people aren't allowed to just come in and use your stuff or whatever. But when it comes to information online... They're allowed to access and, you know, use it uh, for their own gain. And um, if there was a way for us to protect that (laughs) and, uh, and have, you know, protection over our own information and, uh, you know, monetize that just like you would, let's say, um, you know, like YouTube channels that are monetized and using, you know, there's the the critique and things, um, but you have to give credit to where it's coming from and all that stuff. I don't know. So it's, there has to be some way to protect people's uh, stuff, protect people's information. However, I disagree with them that it started with Cambridge Analytica and it was just used by the Trump administration. Uh, I think, you know, obviously social media has been going on for 15 plus years with Google and Facebook and Twitter and other things. So I think there was an agenda in this documentary that was slighted against Trump and suggesting that Trump was the evil one. And I think that there's truth to that, but I don't think it stops there. I think that's the tip of the iceberg. I think the Obama administration used it. I think the Bush administration used it, the Clintons. Um, Now it's been more advanced now with more people on the internet and and things. Uh, So it's progressed as, as far as how much they're able to use our information to manipulate us and uh, that is something that they do they know how people think individuals think they were talking about how they use this especially in places like swing states like Michigan Wisconsin uh, now this documentary I think was before this past election so it's interesting they brought up some of those states um, now regardless I don't know you know there seemed to be evidence of fraud and all that <laughs> in the last election, but, um, and, you know, I'm not here taking sides. I'm just saying that what they were saying in, in this Netflix documentary, and I want to preface that by saying things that are put on Netflix with a mainstream, you know, audience, I don't know how mainstream or how popular this is, but if it's put on something like Netflix, chances are they are putting that out on purpose that the powers that be are kind of allowing that information out. And I would say the same with Edward Snowden. And I watched some of his stuff as well. And I'm not saying that Edward Snowden was a bad guy or that he wasn't a real whistleblower or anything like that. I'm just a little suspicious of the fact that it kind of got this mainstream, uh, you know, uh, attention and when things get a mainstream attention and and are put on Netflix and easy to access i have sus- suspicion that they aren't giving you the whole story they're they're telling you things maybe that are already known or uh they're just giving you one point one part of it and that brings me to some of the more fringe uh medias that are pretty popular such as Alex Jones, and people say, well, yeah, he he had to have been real because he was kicked off the uh, YouTube and <laughs> and he's being censored. Well, you can still easily find his stuff, and he's still very popular amongst uh, conspiracy audience. But 10 years ago, I was proven, you know, to me, it was proven that he was at least a liar and probably a shill. 
uh, from when I heard, you know, around 2010, I started hearing older clips from 99, 2000, where Bill Cooper uh, exposed William or Alex Jones as a uh, as shill. And so um, I would encourage you to, and I'll probably do an episode on shills in the future or episodes <laughs> on shills in the future. So that might be another series I'll do. And another thing I was thinking about is when do I change seasons? Um, you know, because on the Spotify here, there's episodes and then there's seasons. And I'm not sure if I'll ever change the season or not. Maybe I will at some point, but. I'm not sure exactly how or when, but anyway, um, yeah, so just some things to think about. There are shills put in place that reveal things that have already been revealed and exposed, and they're just kind of giving you a sensational side of it and one part of it, and they're not giving you the whole history. Um, I think with the Bill Cooper Mystery Babylon series, which which is in this series of podcasts, you will find um, what I believe is the most thorough education on the mystery schools, the Illuminati, and the powers that be that you can find, like their identification, uh, dogma, and history. So uh, go back and listen to those episodes. All right, so now I'm going to do another funny bit. Uh, This is another part of my cousin Eli and I when we were kids, and he's doing that funny, low-talking voice again. Eli! What do you want to do right now? Man, Eli, you grew since last week. Speak louder. I can't hear you. You grew louder. I mean, what? You grew bigger since last week. I mean, you grew about ten billion taller. I think you better use the microphone. I'm too tall to hear you, little dude. What you say? <laughs> you see, I can't hear what he says. Am I repeating that? <coughs> <coughs> you have a cough? <laughs> what? I just don't understand because if I were him and him were you, you would I be? No, I would be. Whoa, just, just a second. I can't figure this out. Let's see. You're Eli, remember? Sick. You, you, you barfed all over my shoes. I mean, you barfed all over my toe. It's so big. What? You want to use my, my toe for a mountain? Sure. Eli, Eli, I'm using a, a, what do you call it, uh, whatever. Uh, microphone. Yeah, microphone. Eli, uh, uh, are you good at singing? Yeah, I'm the best. <laughs> okay, here you go. Why, you sing good, but I can barely hear you. I know. Here, here, um, put the microphone between my thumbnail. That's it. <laughs> Shut up and let me see. Uh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Everybody, sit back and relax. I was born on the 4th of July. And I love to pick my little nose. What'd you say? I'm gonna sing the highest I can. No, I love you. Can't hear you.
climb up to your ear and scream. No! Hello! Can you hear me? The end. <laughs> As you could tell, I had COVID when we made that uh, <laughs> tape. <laughs> Just a regular cold, actually, as I was doing a lot of coughing. And hopefully my cousin didn't get sick from that. But anyway, on to the topic at hand, Eastern Orthodoxy. Now, when I was first thinking through, uh, you know, the series of video, uh, not videos, of uh, episodes, um, this one did not come to my forefront. Of, you know, as far as I wasn't planning on doing this, but uh, I decided to um, that it was important to touch on because, uh, number one, it challenges me to do some searching and to learn. And number two, I haven't heard a lot of, apo but, you know, I haven't heard a lot of apologetics on it. So I did some searching and found some things. And mainly what I'm looking for are things that are related to uh, the topics that we've discussed before. And you'll hear some key words related to uh, Gnosticism, um, Eastern mysticism, things like that. Uh, Kabbalah, not, not the word Kabbalah or, or the word Gnosticism, but you'll hear some key words concerning Eastern Orthodoxy as we go through this in relation to, I think, some of the origins of the occult. And first, we're going to listen to some audio from a YouTube channel called FOCL Online. And uh, the guy speaking is Michael Reeves. So I wanted to give credit, and I'll leave a, a link to the full video, but I wanted to play a clip from this. And I'm not really sure exactly what his perspective is, but um, he, he talks a little bit about Eastern Orthodoxy. So here is some uh, clip from Michael Reeves. So what we're going to look at now is um, we're going to try to do an evangelical assessment of Eastern Orthodoxy. And so this isn't really looking at mission in an Eastern Orthodox majority context, though it can apply towards that. Um, this is really looking at the theology. And we, we saw in the last session a little bit how Eastern Orthodoxy has experienced something of a revival, strangely, in the West. And uh, it's got a particular attraction for evangelicals, I think especially in the United States at the moment. And if I may, I'm going to add a couple more reasons to what we... Um, saw this morning uh, to why there should be this attraction towards um, Eastern Orthodoxy in the West. Um, there's the mysticism of Eastern Orthodoxy seems to be peculiarly attractive to those dissatisfied with Western charismatic experience. Uh, I give an example of that from um, one of the ex-ministers of the church I used to be at in central London, um, uh, conservative evangelical church. One of these ministers became a leading figure in the 1960s in the charismatic movement. And then his name was Michael Harper. He then converted to uh, become an Eastern Orthodox priest. Uh, and it seemed that um, his charismatic experience was a, a stepping stone towards um, the mysticism of Eastern Orthodoxy. In the U.S., even more strongly, it seems to me, there's an appeal in Eastern Orthodoxy towards the rootless evangelicals. There's an appeal of rootedness, tradition, stability, similar to the appeal of Rome, uh, and a beauty, an aesthetic, um, which, which is attractive an attractive contrast to the banal everydayness of evangelicalism, where there doesn't seem to be any sense of awe or wonder. And so, so there's, that seems to be an especially strong attraction in the United States, as I see it. And also, um, slightly more um, humdrum, perhaps, I think 
some of the converts you see from evangelicalism to Eastern Orthodoxy are fleeing particular Western problems to an unknown that can be molded. Now, let me first uh, stop here real quick and just state that I've seen this from my close circles of friends uh, growing up in a small, very casual Bible church. Um, and some of them, as we've gotten older, a lot of them have left in the recent years uh, to go to more um, the, uh, theurgical uh, I don't know if I said that word right, <laughs> uh, you know, ritualistic type churches. Now, I don't know of anybody that's gone to Eastern Orthodoxy, but I know several that have gone to Lutheran or Anglican. Anglican's a big one because it seems to be more theologically sound, I guess, to conservative evangelicals, yet has that um, theurgical, again, I can't, <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the right word, uh, approach um, the the mysticism the uh, ritualistic side of it and I went and visited the church and I really personally was turned off by it I prefer the more casual realness because um, I mean if you go back and read the Bible like for example when Joseph and Mary were looking for a place to have Jesus to to be born they ended up having him in a manger I mean, you could probably if you were to live back at the times of the Bible, it was anything but, you know, this, you know, beautiful, magnificent, ritualistic thing. I mean, there was, you know, obviously the Levitical, you know, the building of the tabernacle and there was some, you know, symbolism there and all that. But it probably didn't look very beautiful <laughs> in the sense of, uh, you know, they were camping out in the desert and, and, and things like that. So. Um, I, I kind of personally look at things from a more realistic approach and um, I, I, I do enjoy those, you know, the more ritualistic theological gosh, I, things um, once in a while because it makes it special, like going to a candlelight service for Christmas or Easter or um you know, to, to think about the birth of Christ or celebrate the resurrection of Christ and things like that. Every once in a while, to me, makes it special. But every Sunday or Saturday, whatever kind of church you go to, to me, it kind of limits the the specialness of it, in a sense. Um, and plus, I don't like to dress up in a suit and tie a lot. So thankfully, I don't have a job where I have to do that. But I pull it out in special occasions like weddings and, and things. But also note that Michael Reeves mentioned uh, mysticism. And uh, that was a key word within, you know, the mystery schools and Gnosticism and, and things. And it doesn't mean it's the same doctrine or anything like that. It just It's just a key word that, that stuck out to me. So anyway, let me play a little bit more of this guy. Michael Reeves. So Roman Catholicism is a bit more of a known quantity. Eastern Orthodoxy is a slightly more less defined and slightly less known quantity and therefore you can flee it into a religion that can be more comfortable according to what you want. Because Eastern Orthodoxy is quite vaguely understood in the West, um, Yotis mentioned that Christian um, Christianity in the East, Eastern Orthodoxy, has never experienced medieval scholasticism, had a renaissance, uh, a reformation. In fact, in the 1570s, a Lutheran mission team was sent to Constantinople in the hopes of starting a reformation of Eastern Orthodoxy. And the Eastern Orthodox simply didn't understand the categories they were using. They didn't understand what they were talking about. Uh, they haven't really had an enlightenment. So. Eastern Orthodoxy is important and attractive to the West as well. So it's important, whether you're ministering in an Eastern Orthodox majority context or not, to have some grasp of and appreciation for um, ability to be able to discerningly think about Eastern Orthodoxy. So notice how, you know, I think a mystical approach to spiritual things 
can lead to finding the truth from within since it's not well defined since they haven't had the uh, scholar you know as he put it like the uh, scholarly side of things um, the mystical approach to religion or to God um, is very similar to the Gnostics and, and Kabbalah and if you go back and watch or listen to those episodes um, you will find a lot of the similarities even though the doctrine might be different um, it's just that same approach of finding the truth from within, which is also a, like a new age approach to things, um, that the truth is within you. <laughs> and that's how Satan starts to try and lure people into apostasies that are clearly anti-biblical. They just simply say, well, uh, you know, it's meant to be parabolical. It's meant to be sort of a, you know not be taken literally but it means something else <laughs> and of course oftentimes you need a guru to tell you what it means um, or you know you find a new meaning within yourself or something like that so I wanted to, to point that out um, the next uh, section uh, I'm gonna start to uh, play some clips of another guy that I recommend James White who's uh, an apologetic um, speaker that I approve of, I appreciate doesn't mean I agree with everything he says but I think he's really good in terms of um, conservative uh, evangelical doctrine uh, and, and thinking so I definitely uh, re recommend his stuff, his YouTube channel is called Alpha o and Omega Ministries so, um, and I'll even leave a link to the clips, clip that I'll be playing from. But he does a whole episode on Eastern Orthodoxy, and I'll play some of that here, and, and we'll discuss that as well. I have said for a very, very long time that I, I do not have the time to get into the level of criticism of Eastern Orthodoxy that someone needs to get into. There have been a few books published. They're not easily accessible. They're not written in such a way. And, and it may just be because of the subject, because I, I don't even know how I would do it. The reason, you know, some, some people will remember that when Hank Hanegraaff converted, I made some comments on the subject of orthodoxy. And if you recall, what I basically said was that this subject is next to impossible to address because if you actually understand the orthodox mindset, it is not a Western way of thinking. And we're all Western thinkers. We, almost all of the ap apologetic discussion that we have on this program is deeply entrenched in Western ways of thought. Eastern ways of thought are not as wedded to a clear commitment to what we would call logical categories. There is a level of experientialism and mysticism in Eastern thought that is only present in certain medieval writers, spiritualists, um, devotionalists. I mean, there there is an element of it. Um, there's always been the interface between the two, because it's not like, you know, you could divide, no one built a wall uh, somewhere around Greece to, to keep all that type of stuff out. I wanted to pause right here real quick, and there's a word that he used that, uh, experimentalism is something that James White mentioned here and I wanted to bring that up because that I think that is a part of some Western denominations like char the charismatic movement and I will definitely be doing a uh, an episode on that now again there is there's good charismatics there's you know the, but I'm I'm, I'm going to be focusing on an extreme aspect of it and things that are falsely taught within that those circles um, now as for um, 
the, what we're talking about today, the experimentalism, I thought it was interesting because um, it made me immediately think of some of the charismatic extreme circles. And the first guy, Michael Reeves, or is it Michael Reeves? Uh, something Reeves said something about how a lot of people in the w- that are dissatisfied with, especially from charismatic circles, have been moving towards Eastern Orthodoxy recently. So, again, it's one experimental uh, list <laughs> movement to another in a different way, I guess you could say. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Western thinking, the reason we can engage Roman Catholicism on dogmatic statements of belief, and here's this catechism, and this says this, and here's this systematic theology, is because Roman Catholicism is Western thinking, Protestantism is Western thinking, Eastern Orthodoxy just really doesn't have anything like that. In Eastern, real Eastern Orthodoxy, as it's practiced in Russia, Ukraine, you've got the Greek Orthodox as well, but there's been more cross-pollination there, I think, um, because they're the ones that have to have the most, have had historically the most interaction with the West and most influence on, upon it. Um, the liturgy and the prayers of the church are the statement of systematic theology. So it's hard for those of us in the West to understand energia, the energies, and how energies can be spatially located, but only spiritually located, but accessed through the liturgy and worship of the church and trying to get Westerners to have any type of meaningful standpoint from which to even read Eastern Orthodox writing, to begin to understand it, to then to be able to bring it to the standard of Scripture, and even to have a meaningful discussion as to the proper means of exegesis of Scripture. Massively All right, so he mentions another thing here, uh, energies, inner Goya, um, and I think that sounds very new agey to me. And again, I'm not suggesting that Eastern Orthodoxy has the same belief system by any means, but that's a term I've never heard used in my circles of evangelical Bible-believing Christianity. There might be some that do, like I mentioned before, the more experimental, experiential type movements uh, might use that term, but um, uh, it just made me think of... of, uh, the new age kind of philosophy and movement. And I found this clip with Jim Carrey in it, energy of life, spiritual message. It's on a YouTube channel called the journey of purpose. And I'll leave the link to this as well, but I wanted to play this for you. I think everybody's looking for something that they already have. I think the reason that we don't notice it is because we are so distracted by the human levels of our experience. You might not actually be what you think you are. The fact that we are already enlightened, we're already complete, and it's just realizing that you're complete. So everything we do to each other, or everything we see in each other, is us seeing ourselves. And yet the one thing that remains is this feeling of existence. I'm not a human being that has consciousness. I'm consciousness that is shaped into a human being. All of us are energy. A human being is a very complex pattern of energy. I always have been that energy and I always will be that energy. I know this conceptually. Why don't we feel it? And just like an ocean is water in motion, we can call a certain part of that ocean a wave but it gives us the illusion that the wave is a separate entity in the ocean. But a wave is not in the ocean, a wave is the ocean. And similarly, we might not be waves. Maybe we're the ocean. Maybe all of us are energy, and we can realize that directly. All suffering is based on the illusory separation that there's an individual in the environment. 
that there's a person that has to survive, that this specific collection of a thousand trillion trillion atoms has to hold itself together. But if I realize directly that I am energy, and I realize that the body and the mind are a temporary manifestation of that energy, then I can fully accept the death of the body and mind as something that does not happen to me, because I was always energy and I always will be. Ego tries to convince us we need to get something, this immortality, that we already possess. Ego is the voice in your head that says you're not as good as that other person. Maybe you need to do something else to make yourself better to add to yourself. You know, and, and that's what it constantly is doing. It's trying to keep you from being you and me right now, loving this and loving this life. Once you realize you're complete, then, then this life and everything in it becomes a play of form. Something to toy with and play with and make something good out of. And, uh, and it really isn't to be worried about, it's to have fun with. You know, everyone is looking for God and everyone is God. And that everyone okay, is... Okay, so I'm not going to play the entire thing so that I don't, you know, this is just for a critique, but I'll leave a link to the entire uh, video and you can watch it yourself or listen to it. Um, but notice, you know, this is a very uh, new age concept idea which New Age actually comes from Eastern mysticism. And I'm bringing all this up because I think it's kind of related to some of the, co the concepts and ideas surrounding Eastern orthodoxy, as mentioned by James White and Michael Reeves. And uh, that leads us into some more discussion on Eastern thought uh, and the New Age movement. Uh, which I will discuss, but first I want to play a song which I think is related to what we're talking about. Uh, this is another indie artist, uh, actually two, that did an album together, Jad Fair and Daniel Johnston, and they did a cover of the Beatles song, Tomorrow Never Knows, and Daniel Johnston starts screaming out, stay away from this philosophy, this idea, which is, you know, I'm not really sure what you know, his view was, but sometimes he spoke out against, like, Satanism and things, but uh, he also had some other weird things that he would do or say or sing about that weren't necessarily Christian, but anyway, I just wanted to play the song because I think it's kind of in rela relation to what we're talking about. Once again, that is Jad Fair and Daniel Johnston from an album called It's Spooky, and it, that song is recorded in a spooky way, uh, originally written by the Beatles, and I 
that song itself has some new age concepts in it. And I know this episode's not about the new age, but um, I wanted to show the connections or the similarities and terminology there and how the new age movement is not new. It comes from Eastern mysticism and Eastern thought, which I think Eastern orthodoxy also has sort of that Eastern thought, the way that they approach things. Um, and that leads me to the last thing I'm going to read some, some from Walter Martin's book, The Kingdom of the Occult. And he doesn't talk about Eastern orthodoxy, but he does talk about, he has a chapter on Eastern mysticism and the New Age. And some of the things we've been talking about um, are very similar. So it kind of comes full circle, and that's why I think it's important to discuss this stuff as well. In the turbulent decade of the 1970s, an explosion of occult knowledge occurred, saturating the Western world with the potent seeds of a new perspective, a strange blend blend of 19th century spiritism, mysticism, and humanism. It took the name of the New Age movement and quickly evolved into a bolder, more organized revival of ancient occultism. It was a new title with an ancient goal, the penetration of all areas of culture, political, educational, and religious, with man at the center of the universe. The New Age agenda was a clear and surprisingly unified, a millennium without the biblical God. Christian apologi apologists were the first to note the error of quote-unquote self-glorification during the mid-1970s, human potential movement which eventually merged into the New Age. Dr. Bryce, a a pettit, a mission specialist for occult and occult adherents, wrote, The current interest in the effect NRMs have on missionary activi activities uh, began in 1958 when Walter Martin, an evangelical critic of the cults, was asked to be part of the pastor's conference team of World Vision Incorporated, he traveled over 25,000 miles throughout Africa and Asia, speaking to thousands of Christian workers and gathering information on the impact of NRMs. Uh, what is NRMs? Okay, it doesn't really say here. But anyway, um, impact of NRMs were having on the missionary efforts. Over the next few years, he visited other countries and continued to gather information relevant to the threat these groups posed to world missions. His Christian Research Institute became the model for dozens and eventually hundreds for other counter-cult organizations worldwide over the next four decades. American journalist Tom Wolfe coined the satiric term the me decade in 1976 when he powerfully characterized the demotion of God and the enthronement of man as the sovereign of the universe. Now go back to um, real quickly some of the things we've been talking about. Um, you know, looking, looking within for the truth, you know, the energies, inner Gaia um, and mysticism and, and things of experientialism so it's a self focused idea um, okay so this societal change of perspective from God to self brought with it a sense of false enlightenment mankind could only benefit from abandoning outdated ideas of God and focusing on himself as Wolf recalled it you had finally quote you have you had finally focused your attention and your energies on the most fascinating subject on earth, me, unquote. Wolf went on to say that the theology of ancient Gnosticism, interesting how it comes back to that, reappeared in the new movements of the 1960s, which taught that at the center of the human soul, there exists a spark of the light of God, souls who are clear can find that spark within themselves and unite their souls with God's. 
unquote. The, that quote started with, um, sorry, I, there exists a spark of light. <clears throat> Wolf's observation agrees with contemporary Christian writers who expose the error of self-worship. The glorification of mankind through the human potential movement of the mid-70s led to the more religious New Age movement as observed by Christian apologists. As the New Age movement gained popularity, the human potential cults began waving the same banner of unity in diversity. Part of the emerging New Age success came through undermining Christianity and destroying God's revelation the Bible. Now again, I want to make this very clear. I'm not suggesting that Eastern Orthodoxy and New Age movement believe the same thing. But there's a lot of the concepts that are similar. And one of the things that Satan does in infiltrating the church is mixing biblical ideas with, uh, you know, Gnostic or occultic kind of ideas or ways of thinking. Now, let me skip a couple of paragraphs here, and I've, uh, it says the door opened perceptibly for popularizing occultism in the Western world and merging it with Christianity in 1743. Now, I think, obviously, <laughs> Satan was trying to do this long before that with Kabbalism and Gnostic Christianity and things that we've already talked about. Uh but in 1743, when Emanuel Swedenborg, son of Swedish Lutheran minister, founded Swedenborgianism, his revelations and visions of the deceased marked a new trend among occultists and mediums who often relied upon sciences for contact with the dead. Uh, we talked about this uh, when I, in the uh, Roman Catholic episode of how they pray to the saints. Um, they, they look at it a little differently, but it's pretty much the same concept. Swedenborg claimed he had conversations with biblical characters, church fathers, and church reformers, including Moses, Jesus, Paul, Augustine, Luther, and Calvin. Many occult, esoteric, mystic, mind, science, and New Age groups relied upon this groundwork for occultic contact with spirits. Um, Swedenborg's metaphysics shaped the thinking of 19th century New England transcendentalists such as uh, Emerson, Thoreau, Ripley, Holmes, and Alcott, who later influenced Madame Blavatsky of Theosophy, Mary Baker Eddy of Christian Science, the early 20th century metaphysical schools, the Fillmores of Unity Church, the Ballards of the Mighty I.M. Movement, New Thought Groups, Mind Science Groups, and New Age Groups. Swedenborg's occultism was not necessarily mirrored in each of these groups, but it was certainly copied by Blavatsky and her visions of the Twelve Ascended Masters. Now, I will probably get deeper into New Age and some of these other things later. I just wanted to point out some of the similarities in concept. Uh, not necessarily in doctrine, um, but I do want to play some, go back to James White now, and we're going to play some audio of him talking about what Eastern Orthodoxy teaches and believes uh, now that we've gotten past sort of the, the way that they think, which is, like I said, similar to the New Age movement, but, uh, but their doctrines are not quite that. So... Um, here is some James White talking about some uh, doctrines of Eastern Orthodoxy. At many, many centuries of church history in which there is no, no Bible, well, God has not ceased working. He's worked through the church. The Holy Spirit working through the church is continuing to communicate truth. The truth not only of Scripture, but a proper understanding of that scripture. And you can kind of... Okay, so here, this is important. We need to catch this, okay? So what you do is you cast doubt on the canon of scripture outside of the authority of a church, in this case, Athanasius's decision, evidently. And then you say, 
all these centuries go by, but the spirit was still active during this time, right? And so the spirit is communicating truth in scripture and the interpretation of scripture. Now, Rome does this by saying there are these apostolic traditions that are passed down orally. Eastern Orthodoxy does this through the concept of the liturgy. The liturgy and prayers of the church are the outworking of the ministry of the Holy Spirit amongst the people of God. And hence, as it really comes into Orthodoxy tends to chafe when you point out that her traditions are pretty much 8th century, 8th, 9th century. She wants to say, no, they're, they're all apostolic. They just happen to be seen with the greatest clarity by some of the great writers of that time period. You know, the rise of Islam causes a uh, clarification of things, which is true, by the way. But, but the idea being, you know, it goes back to apostolic uh, tradition. But the idea is the spirit, the living spirit in the living church produces liturgy and prayer that becomes the matrix in which the scripture is to be interpreted. This is the orthodox denial of sola scriptura. And it's different than the Roman denial of sola scriptura, which provides a functional, technically non-revelatory, but in light of what has been defined by the church um, since then, plainly is revelatory, categories of this oral tradition that has a, allegedly should have a historical existence to it. As is always the case, the orthodox understanding is significantly less concrete, which is why I have sat in this chair for a number of years now and said, we're not going to get into all this and we just keep getting dragged into it one way or another. But what you're hearing is the orthodox denial of solo scriptura. And I think one of the reasons we're seeing, we go through cycles of this. And once you get my age, you get used to seeing the up and down. Um, and you don't get all excited about it. Other people do that haven't seen this before. But I think that's why we're seeing the current interest in orthodoxy amongst uh, reform people and stuff like that. And you always get your converts. And it's, you know, once you've seen as many people go this direction, that direction that I have, you that's why you eventually end up really honoring consistency over time. Okay. Anyway, <clears throat> I think one of the reasons that we've got this current uptick is because not only are people not familiar with the categories and practice of Eastern Orthodoxy, the way I just expressed it sounds sort of cool. I mean, it does. I mean, and there are elements of truth to the continuing presence of the spirit in the church, um, the intimate connection that is to exist there, the, the reality that, Christ is building his church, and therefore we can learn from those who've come before us. But that's totally different functionally than the idea that Scripture cannot function as a reforming, objective source of divine truth that corrects the church. See, the biggest problem with Eastern Orthodoxy is it can't be reformed. It can't be reformed. It is encrusted in 8th and 9th century tradition which has become the only possible lens for the interpretation of anything, including scripture. And so the voice of the bridegroom is now completely confused the voice of the bride. And you can't distinguish between the two, and therefore you can't have correction. That's why solo scripture is so important. You can't have reformation. The idea being, well, you'd never need it because the spirit won't lead you into these errors. And that's the problem in not recognizing that in this life, the church is going to have all sorts of false sons within her pale. And so there's going to be need for reformation.
You need to have clear access to the voice of Christ in his church. And once you, in essence, bury that voice by marrying it with the voice of tradition, you become encrusted and stuck. And that's where orthodoxy is. That's where orthodoxy is. Now, in America, they use that as a positive thing because they, they look at evangelicals who have no historical foundation at all, have no appreciation of the, of the fact that Christ has been building his church at all. And they use that then, just like Roman Catholicism likewise uses the, the allure of the ancient church standing in the midst of time, unchanged, so on and so forth, until you start digging in and find out where the changes have actually been. Now, the voice you heard at the beginning of that clip was Hank Handegraaff, which is one reason why it's become something talked about more amongst apologists or evangelical apologists. Uh, and so um, he was, he, Hank Handegraaff was the Bible answer man, which I think he inherited from Walter Martin. I could be wrong, which Walter Martin I respect. And I did remember listening to Hank Handegraaff on the radio. And it seemed like the things he was talking about was pretty good. But in recent years, he's converted to Eastern Orthodoxy. And I'm not sure if he continues to do that Bible Answer Man uh, program or not. But uh, anyway, James White was doing some, you know, critiquing or talking about Hank Handegraaff and, and Eastern Orthodoxy, which you notice he doesn't really get too much into doctrine because it's not well-defined. And that's what James White is saying there. And so it's kind of interesting. It's, it's difficult to, to, uh, to define it according to James White, and maybe there will be something better uh, that d explains it in the future. Um, but a lot of people in the West, I think the reason they like it is because they enjoy the ritualistic side of it, but they don't want to be under the Pope. And so they like the independence of it. But, um, you know, as I explained in a previous episode, there's many issues with Roman Catholicism doctrinally, even besides the Pope. But the next thing he mentions, uh, or James White mentions, is sola scriptura, I guess is the terminology. The uh, um, I don't know if that's Greek or Latin or what, but anyway... The idea that our foundation for truth is the Bible. And some of these cults, some of these her heretical movements try and make you question the understanding of Scripture, the straightforward understanding of it. And they think that it's so um, allegorical that it's difficult. You cannot understand it with the human mind. You have to kind of either have a guru or find the answer from within or through these rituals or whatever. And so this is the, you know, the foundation of heresy is once you don't use, once you move away from scripture as your foundation, uh, and we've talked about that with Kabbalah and Gnosticism, uh, once you move away from the scripture, then your foundation for truth becomes your own ideas and your own imagination. Um, and when, you know, experimentalism, uh, not experimentalism, experientiality uh, ideas can also be deceiving. There's people that claim that an angel of the Lord came and appeared to them. Now, they may very well have had some spiritual experience. But we have to understand that there are fallen angels, you know, that Satan himself presents himself as an angel of light. And that is why we can't depend on experience for the truth. Experience can be deceptive in and of itself. That our foundation for truth is the Bible and the Bible alone. So... Uh, anyway, I hope you all enjoyed this. This is just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> and so hopefully you can dig deeper into these things than I've presented here in one hour. Uh, but anyway, the next 
topic, I'm kind of the next episode. I think will be Rosicrucianism, the Order of the Rosen Cross, and some of these um, more these uh, secret societies connected to Protestantism or that infiltrated Protestantism. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure exactly where I'm going to go to next, uh, but I think I think Rosicrucianism will be an aspect of that. So that will be the next episode. Thank you all, and have a wonderful day. This is the most awesomest podcast of all time. I'm your host, Rob Hedrick. This podcast is brought to you by Proverbs 16:18. Pride goeth before destruction. 